This episode contains information that some listeners might find disturbing. It contains discussion on rape, sexual harassment, violence and aggression. Discretion is advised. Having said that, this is not for anybody's entertainment. If you're looking for one, you might as well exit right away. Thank you. India is discussing what is the right punishment for rape. Parliamentarians suggest that castration or lynching them in public is one way to go. Every once in a while, there comes a new story that leaves you completely numb. Numb because you witness the abject brazenness of the authorities. There's shock and anger in India after a 19-year-old gang raped and left for dead by her attackers died in hospital. She battled for life for two weeks. Then a 19-year-old Dalit girl gang raped, tortured in Uttar Pradesh's Hathras and now India is called the rape capital of the world. The rape capital. Not the economic, educational, welfare, cultural. You and I, we think we understand India and that we understand the social issues that plague the nation and talk about universal income and free education. We think our leaders and their political leaning is the problem. That maybe if we are liberals for leaders, maybe if they were feminists, maybe if they cared about the cultural constraints and progress, things might be better. But let's try to flip this notion on its head. What if our leaders and netas perfectly know what India wants? It's clear from the voting patterns, the following on social media and from our political affiliations what the majority of the country wants, what we feel comfortable with. To make things interesting, we have leaders with criminal records dictate governance, leaders who make problematic statements, people who do not understand deep brutal cultural problems and people who romanticize misogyny as members of the national political parties and as heads of states. Well, it seems to be working so far. Forget politicians. Look at us. We elect problematic misogynistic leaders because we're okay with this. In fact, our acceptance of this culture can be inferred from what we consume every day. The movies we watch, the music tracks that are obviously problematic, but we still jam along with because they're catchy and the jokes we laugh at. I mean, this in itself is a celebration of toxic culture. We just look at how things are wrapped and we hardly ever see what is inside the package. So it gives no room for any of us to think what could be problematic about it. So maybe yes, maybe they do know what we want. I mean, our silence in terms of not standing up against issues like this or letting leaders who do not understand gender and caste dynamics or any important issues win, for that matter, is taken for acceptance. So it is the same cycle. We're fed with meaningless, problematic content for entertainment and we will continue to have criminals for leaders. And it will continue until we do something about it. Because in India, you say it is always what or who holds popular approval. It is always what is profit generating. It is always what content or what person can elicit a certain kind of reaction from the majority of the Indians. Only those will sell. So the important issues hardly ever surface. They surface when perhaps there is an added element of controversy attached to it that would stir public attention, not more. I mean, just look at how the Indian media covered Shashant Singh's suicide. That could have been an opportunity to really examine so many issues that India has played with. But thanks to the Indian media's focus on Rhea Chakrabarti, the entire nation would soon forget about mental health issues and move on. Another example 
is do you remember how the rape threat issued by Shubham Mishra to the female comedian a couple months ago is covered? It is again something that most of us have forgotten and moved on to the next issue. Why? We cannot deny that men harassing women or issuing rape and death threats to them is a systematic everyday occurrence, but it continues to exist without consequences. Why? Because we cover one-off instances like this instead of highlighting the problem well enough to ask for a systemic change. So the truth about half the horrors happening around us never surface and we live in ignorance and we don't understand the problem or the reason behind having our country called a rape capital or we can't seem to wrap our heads around these sudden injustices that surface, like that of the Hathras. But the real question is, are they sudden? Really? Or do they surface when they're sure to sell? Very well said, Shweta. Now let's extrapolate this idea of what sells and what is fed to us in everyday news and media. I use the term fed because the media is a powerful tool that shapes people's perspectives, which is also why it's called the fourth pillar of democracy. It's supposedly the people's voices, but really, does it speak for all of us? Let's try a small exercise to verify if it does indeed speak for us. When I say rape, and death threats, what comes to your mind? Um, of course, the infamous Shubha Mishra. We're hoping it's still fresh in your minds. Perhaps the incident from December 2019 where a survivor was threatened with a fate worse than Unao if she goes to court? For sure, just the popular ones, right? Now, let's do something else. Let's look at crimes against women in general and see what cases pop up in our heads. Um, so, when I say rapes, what comes to your minds? Go. Uh, the recent one is Hatras. And then the, the big one that created a lot of uh, furor, which is Nirbhaya's December 2012, New Delhi. The Kathwar rape case, Hyderabad veterinary doctor, and Shakti Mills rape case, which drew a lot of political attention. You know, it's interesting that you should think of these particular set of rapes. And interestingly, over the past couple of weeks, our Instagram followers and the general public over the survey that we conducted online has also been mentioning these popular names time and again. And there's something common, in fact, that runs through these rapes that makes the media cover them more effectively than they cover the rest and that makes these incidents stand out forever, that makes them popular, if I may put it this way. You want to know what it is? It is the fact that the victims or the survivors of these rapes all belong in the upper class. And of course, in rapes like the Hatras or the Katuas, what attracted uh, the attention of the public was how the rape was covered and how yeah. um, the right. police handled the rape, how the government reacted to the rape rather than the incident in itself. Uh, well, let's be honest here. The India's Indian news media's portrayal and coverage of rape is known for its tendency to narrowly focus on sexual violence against middle class and upper caste women and always tend to ignore violence against poor, rural, lower class, lower caste, and other marginalized women and gender queers, unless there's a controversial story in there, because the TRP ratings and money, and there are so many reports to corroborate this. And this can be verified right away by doing a very simple exercise. Go ahead, try and name six rapes that happen to minority women in the country. Most of us might not be able to. And this is exactly what we're going to talk about today. In today's episode of the Audacity Project, we explore whether there is a pro-affluent bias in the media we consume. Importantly, we'll explore whether patriarchy affects how gender-related violence is perceived and dealt with, with specific focus on the role of media and the newsprint houses. You're listening to episode 7 of the Audacity Project with Shweta Menal and Jai Shri Tangam.
So let's dive right in. Hi again. As Jayashri and I sat down to talk about how to deliver this episode so the gravity of the problem is felt by most of our listeners, we decided that the best way would be to cut to the cheese right away. So if you recall a few seconds ago, we spoke about how it might be difficult to name more than six rape victims from the minority communities. But here's a fact. At least 10 Dalit women are raped every day and less than 2% of these are registered. And we know how the two persons that are registered are handled by the police and the state machinery. And if you still don't know and are oblivious to this, please go to Google and uh, type Hathras incident. You will understand how the body of the victim was forcefully cremated in the middle of the night and the family of the victim was shushed, threatened and warned not to speak about the truth to anybody. And there's more. Between 2007 to 2017, crimes against Dalits increased by 66% while rape against Dalit women increased by 200% according to National Crime Bureau statistics. But we don't hear about any of this. The truth is, Dalit women have no media representation, hardly any political representation and no access to justice, none at all. These women are killed as they try to come forward to register their complaints or even simply just raise their voice. And while we're talking and while you're listening to this episode, a Dalit woman is being raped for a reason as Meenil is asking for a 3 rupee raise of wanting to not be a manual scavenger, of wanting a better future for herself, of wanting to break away from the systemic pattern of oppression. Let's talk about all of this, but we'll start from the very basics. So, um, we are now quoting Manisha Mashal, a Dalit rights activist. She says, life in India is not easy. When I was in class 3, I did not know what my main wish is. And I'm assuming this is just a regular activity that was happening in a class that she was referring to. And maybe uh, the, so the, she goes on to explain that the teacher asked all of the students what their dreams and wishes were, which is a normal activity that happens in all of her schools and all of, all of her classes when, when we were kids, right? So she says, at that time, the teacher had told me that I'm a Dalit. She made me stand in the classroom and said, you should tell that you're a Dalit, Mashalal told uh, TRT World. So what this means is, uh, so it's just othering her. perfectly othering her in front of every every other students in a class, and she must have been embarrassed. And so and that to just, imagine that this starts from such a young, young age. age, exactly. And and just think about it: would that girl even dare to talk about what her dreams and ambitions are in any of other classes, in any other forum that she's asked about, right? And thus, Dalits are discriminated against from a very very young age from not even being allowed to enter the house of a person from an upper caste or even drink from the same water source. They can be singled out for their caste within the walls of the classroom, workplace or even the court of law. These acts, this discriminatory treatment, domestic violence, ridicule, lack of education and opportunities, this is perceived as tolerable. And why? Because their worst case scenario is rape, sexual harassment being assaulted, stripped and paraded around naked, murder, etc. We're sorry about the details, we really are, but we think it's very important to start a dialogue around what happens. And going further, an important question that we should be asking is why this happens to them. And the answer is, well, just so they're disciplined, just so they're constantly reminded of their position in the society, so they know who's powerful and who's not. So you understand, 
I mean, it's not really the gender differences. It's rather the power and the need to inscribe subordination on the female community. It's a need to inscribe subordination on the female community belonging in the lower caste. So they know who's powerful and who's not. And if you ask us, what decides this element of power? It is caste. So we need to address the question, what is caste? So castes are labels of society or social identity stamped onto someone the moment they're born in India. In India, it's a reflection of one's honor and purity. If you think about it, it is really a brilliant euphemism denoting the relationship between the oppressor and the oppressed. To understand Absolutely. this better, yeah, blatantly replace the word caste with the phrase, what level of oppression are you on? On every application, bank papers, job and educational applications. Maybe then you'll understand. Maybe then people will actually be forced to see, right? Yeah. Because if they're looking at the question, oh, by caste, they actually mean I am in this yeah. level of oppression in the country that I live mm-hmm. in. Yeah. So it discharges one function, just one. It establishes hierarchy and degree of oppression amongst people in the society. This hierarchy would determine every aspect of your life. The quality of your education, the opportunities that life presents you with, the treatment you receive at schools and universities, at workplaces, in streets, and even again by the court of law. Now factor in your class and your gender to this hierarchy. It becomes worse. If you remember the pyramid we discussed in the first episode, we broke down hierarchy of how a mixture of class and caste fares for the Indians. Today, we will add gender to the pyramid and discuss what life looks like for the lower caste, lower class, minority women and genderqueers. We're going to start with the fact that that's perceived to be common knowledge but has been brushed under the carpet for a very long time. Manual scavenging. Most of us know that Dalits manually remove human excreta or they're manual scavengers despite the fact that this has apparently been eradicated in India. Theoretically, but how many of you know that they do so not for cash payment but for two rotis the men, they're paid in cash, but the women are paid rotis. Mostly because of the assumption that women aren't deserving of being paid in cash. Or because of the assumption that they don't understand the money. Or the power that comes with the finances. What? So for cleaning up your shit, they pay two rotis and we let this happen. Shweta, we're talking about Dalits here. Um, I shouldn't be talking about something that happens at work even today. Because different levels, levels of privilege. But I, I feel like I need to cite this example here is that even at work, when uh, when women ask for races, uh, monetary compensation, the HR and the bosses think women really don't know how to manage their finances. And it's better that, um, you know, it's, it's, with, it's with them than give it to her on monthly compensation because money is better in the bank than at a girl's hand, right? Wow. In the 21st century? Damn, that's demeaning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sorry, sorry for the tangent. I'm just going to get back to where we were. And so let's just, uh, let me give you another story. In Uttar Pradesh, women from 12 families manually clean toilets with full knowledge of village authorities. But if they quit, they would not be allowed to enter the land to collect firewood or graze their livestock. Hence, this becomes their life. They're just forced into it. There's no way out. And if they if if, if they if not, they try to quit, they're threatened with physical abuse and violence by the men belonging to the upper caste. 
if they do not return to clean toilets. So that's what happens. They either threatened um, or they don't live and they get abused and they have to die. So, yeah. And if you're asking, hey, why can't I go to the police? Because if you go to the police station, you then realize that the police is dominated by men from the same caste that issued these threats to you. And so are the local government officials. The power in the entire region is being held by your enemies, by the same people that oppress you. So they don't register complaints. They just ask you to go back home and save your fucking honor. Moving forward, you should ask, but do they have any kind of a statutory protection? Well, you're right. There is a Prohibition of Employment as Manual Scavengers Act that was enacted in 2013, but states don't enforce them. So it only exists on paper. In fact, on March 2014, the Indian Supreme Court mandated states' intervention to end this practice and rehabilitate all people engaged in the practice. But states have failed, and we don't care. Because we're too busy going on about our lives, we've turned a blind eye to the everyday injustice that happens to us. But apparently there's an amendment coming up, like that's gonna help anything because at this point, hey, it's not a secret that India has a huge problem when it comes to implementation. Because by now you should know that a law, a mere law in place wouldn't help a problem. I mean, look around you, there's a law in place for every kind of crime that's happening around us. But there's also another real problem with this amendment. The problem is they only look at the act of manual scavenging and they do not address practical solutions. Like if the act was also backed by rehabilitation, job opportunities, a better education, then probably there would be some tangible solution. Because you see, their problem is caste, clearly, and that is what makes them vulnerable to all kinds of systemic oppression. So any act will have to holistically address the complexities of caste problems. At the very basic, you should guarantee them education, you should guarantee them jobs, they need to know that they can depend on something else for a livelihood. I mean, the Act on Right to Education was implemented over a decade ago, but there's still the problem of illiteracy, child labor, exploitation, child marriages, and so on. So you do the math. Uh, right. Uh, so you want to understand how disgusting and reproachable this is? Watch the movie Toilet. Um, I'm not sure if it's available on Netflix, but uh, do find a way. You, I'm sure you're all smart. Just figure out a way to watch this movie. It is a must-watch. It might also be available on YouTube, so try that out. Additionally, we'll also leave a report compiled by the Human Rights Watch in 2014 on manual scavenging, caste and discrimination in India. You can find it on our website or on our Instagram page. Yeah, uh, so our website again is www.theaudacityproject.net and our Instagram is the.audacityproject. Project. yeah. <laughs> right. Now, if I may just quickly go back to the question of why we address the issue of manual scavenging in this very episode, is that imagine being threatened with rape and violence for wanting to quit this undignifying job and for wanting to wanting a better future for yourself. Imagine if rape is used as a tool of discipline to remind you that your only purpose in this world is to clean someone else's... But it doesn't stop just there, does it? Dalits are being harassed and threatened with rape and violence for things as menial as wanting to wear a footwear outside of the neighborhood. Worse, because most of them don't have the luxury of bathrooms. Imagine being harassed and raped on your way to the bathroom when you're taking a walk. These are some things that never even cross our minds. All of these Dalit women, they're extremely untouchable. They're all untouchable, but extremely viable. Men don't shy away to touch them, to rape them, but they don't, uh, they, they're not allowed to sit in the same room, sit, uh, drink from the same source of water. Disgusting. Really, really disgusting. 
but we don't just hear about any of this on everyday basis look at all the news that you get these are not about these women or their status because they're supposed the you know caste based disc- discrimination is supposed to be illegal so there it goes here's what sujata gidla an indian american author who holds a masters degree in physics and worked at the indian institute of technology madras on a project funded by the indian space research organization has to say about caste based discrimination in india if you are college educated from a co- from college educated parents how can you be an untouchable uh it the untouchability it doesn't have to do with your education or your skills or anything it's by birth it's inherited from your family and it won't go away until you die you were born into untouchability and you die in untouchability die in untouchability if you are someone who still thinks that caste oppression is a thing of the past or that it's been done with in india then we strictly recommend that you read the book Ants Among Elephants and Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India by Sujata Gidla which is an extremely powerful book by the author that discusses the kind of oppression that she was put through in her life only because of her caste identity and she talks about the kind of damage that internalizing this caste identity can do to one and more importantly in a recent interview where she talks about how her life changed after she moved to America she describes this one particular incident a date she went on with her boyfriend where he reached out to take a bite of her food and she just stopped him as a reflex reaction to tell him that hey i've touched the food so you can't touch it i'm an untouchable and that goes on to show the kind of damage that living in a society that internalizes and normalizes this caste system can do to one so in a way you grow up to feel that the kind of discrimination the harassment the rape and murder threats that you take on from all facets all sides of the society is something that you deserve and this caste identity is something that you probably deserve because if enough people are dismissing it as normal then perhaps you deserve it now translate this system of normalized oppression onto sexual violence against them It's your apathy that you think is inconsequential that really paves way for bigger crimes to happen and we still don't react the way we should and you know what the truth is even if some of us hear about these cases on news read about it on papers our reaction isn't really much it is shock initially for a second or two and then we instantly turn over to the next page because by now we understand that this is the institutional reality for the underprivileged the irony is we admit that this is systematic we admit that it's brutal but by calling this a systematic violence we say oh yes that is how life is for these women what can we do yeah by doing this we selectively condone certain kind of violence because us on the other side with the privilege to read newspapers hear news and express our sympathies and opinions we do not relate to it you know at a certain level to a certain extent we feel that the danger is not near to us it's not imminent or it's not immediate to us and hence we do not react as much as we do when we read stories of a middle or upper class woman working woman being raped because in these cases it's one of us and that threatens us instantly now that is horrifying it needs it needs call for an action then it sinks in that just like how that upper class woman was raped we could be violated too it sinks in it could be any of us on that bus or it could be any of us stranded on the road with a flat tire and it could happen to any of us sometime and that we need to do something about it but this rage the candlelight marches the protests calling to amman loss 
enforce stricter protection, calling for change in the system, hardly happens when we hear news about Dalit woman, Kashmiri woman, Muslim woman, genderqueer. In fact, there has hardly ever been any stories about some of these minority women on the mainstream media. Mm-hmm, that's right. That, because the, we feel that to a certain extent, the danger is not nearer immediate and we don't react as much, right? Uh, in fact, most rapes covered by the media, starting from Nirbhaya to the Hyderabad incident where the doctor was brutally raped after she was brutally burnt after she was raped um, they belong in the middle class and upwards from there or at least weren't dalits or tribals as we call them in fact nirbhaya was reportedly one amongst the 68 victims that night and that particular incident attracted media's attention because she was a physiotherapy intern in urban india who went home that night after catching an english movie with a male friend from an upper caste uh, an upper caste male friend and and by pointing this fact out i'm not trying to condemn the kind of uproar and the coverage that that particular rape received but i'm just saying that the december 2012 incident was not the first ever nirbhaya that the country lost to rape and brutal violence i'm, I'm just trying to say that it attracted the kind of outrage it did because people like you and me could connect with it. This is called the power of people like us narrative, right? Like Just like you pointed out. By this, I mean, soon there was, a, oh God, Nirbhaya could have been one of us. Like you said, it could have been you or me on the bus that night, right? And then Absolutely. We, yeah, yeah. And then we feel that the danger is immediate. We need to act. We need to do something. I mean, for sure, the recent incident, it attracted more attention too. But it's how the case was handled by the police that drew the media attention here. It, it angered us. It took us to the streets to protest against Shaw. And, and this, this anger is what the media thrives on. They deliver stories like these when they can expect, you know, a, two reactions. A big following. Yeah. Right? Either, you know, people like you and I can relate to that would cause an immediate outrage or stories that have gory details and grotesque mishandling with the police so people would want to follow up on because these kind of stories, they sell. I mean, if, if some of you are still thinking, hey, the media cannot report every crime that happens everywhere, we understand what you're saying, but that's not our point. Be patient. But is there a pattern in the kind of reporting that they've been doing so far? Right, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I think now is the time we talk about Adrija Day's findings in her book. Adrija Day. In her book, Nirbhaya, New Media and Digital Gender Activism, reports that on 17 December 2012, when Nirbhaya's case was reported, there were also two other articles covering rapes in South of India. That on 18th of December 2012, there were 21 articles reported just on Nirbhaya's case. This is just one day after. And no follow-ups on the other rapes from the South of India. And two days later, on the 19th of December, there were 28 articles providing all gory details and providing updates as to how the public was reacting to it and blaming the laws, commenting on how safe Delhi has suddenly become, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And just one article covering another rape of a five-year-old child belonging to a village in Tamil Nadu. After that, there had been no follow-ups on any other cases, cases from rural parts of India. The media is capitalizing on these rapes in the urban sectors that most people like us could relate to, or that is the rural areas where there is controversy. What does this convey? You think it conveys a systematic problem of gender and violence? Or how the interplay of caste makes some genders more vulnerable? No, no. This only conveys scarce in- in- instances of injustice and hardly tells you 
that it is a systemic problem. Absolutely. You need to be seeing statistics and numbers that talk about sexual violence. You need to you need numbers that convey the magnitude of this problem. You need numbers that tell you that this is the system and we've all been living comfortably with such shit happening in the society. The coverage needs to be huge that it reflects badly on the police, the politicians. Most of our Indian politicians don't know politics of gender and violence or they do know shit and don't react. Most people don't know about anything. They don't know if the politicians know. They don't know what's happening around. They don't care because the danger is not imminent if you don't belong in the lower caste. And and then no one cares, so the media doesn't care. It becomes a freaking vicious cycle. And, and that's exactly what we're trying to convey. Media reporting is about sensitizing the public to what is happening around us. It, it is about waking us up. It is about making us see the ugly side of things. And it is about calling the nation out on our casteist bullshit. It is about calling our politicians out, pointing out what they do and they don't, what they don't do to address crimes. I mean, it is ridiculous how much we let slip by because of our privilege. And finally, when the media reports on rural violence, how are they reported? Allah read how two percent of these crimes that are reported are reported. Missing minor Dalit girls mutilated body recovered in UP. Parents alleged rape before murder. Timestamp News, 3rd of October. Dalit women stripped, beaten, paraded naked in UP village. Uh, this is reported in India today. Kadalur, Dalit women raped, murdered or affair? This is a question. Uh, the reporters are not even sure and this seems to be the headline. And we all know how Hatra's rape was reported. As we read out these headlines, what do you think is the problem here? It is a style of reporting. That's right. The newspapers don't shy away. These details, the intention behind giving away these details is about selling the papers and, and it is not about awareness. Joanna Jolie, a BBC reporter, puts this better. She says, there's a difference between helping the authorities tackle an issue versus flaming these issues and satisfying their commercial interests. And this is with respect to every rape that is covered. Remember how the media reported the Palachi rape and extortion crime last year? So here's what happened, right? Four men deceived over 200 women, raped them, shot videos of the act and blackmailed the women with videos to extort, extort more sexual favors. And I remember every time I would go on Google to check updates on this case, the first result I would see displayed would be Polachi. Find original videos here. Find uncensored videos here. Sex videos leaked. Because that was a content that sold. I recently read a blog that took me back to how the victim of the Hyderabad rape incident in November 2009, the victim's name, was searched over 8 million times on porn websites in India, which also ties in back to why media does not shy away from giving out gross, gory details, why media doesn't think twice before violating the privacy of the victim or the survivor, and why media does what it does. But the question we ask is, is that a reason good enough for the media to boost its personal TRP to sort of keep its business entity up and running? Should the media feed into the morbid mentality of the mob? Should media sort of normalize and glorify this culture by giving out such details, by not handling this the right way, by not following the ethics? Having said that, going back to the caste dimension of sexual violence in India, as this particular episode has been addressing, there is a particular reason why such violence and such incidents have been underreported. There is a particular reason why voices over 600 million people are shushed, 
silenced and their stories their narratives don't reach the mainstream media don't reach the masses as much as it should as extensively as it should and the reason has a lot to do with who sits in the boardroom of these companies the reason has a lot to do with whose faces we're watching on the news on the television channels every day and that is what we'll talk about in the following episode in the following episode we'll talk about rape culture in general we'll talk about who is responsible for having created this rape culture we'll talk about who reports more of our stories we'll talk about how they're being reported the way they reported we'll talk about the implications of this style of reporting and we'll talk about what can be done to change the situation so this is not all there's more coming for you in indian media's pro affluent bias so stay tuned right uh, so if you really felt something was something was really nice something was important if you really want to connect with us do reach out to us either through our instagram or on our website uh there's a tab there to connect with us leave your feedback and engage with us this is what we really want we want to start conversations and we we are not here to voice our opinions on you this is this these are just conversation starters and even if you disagree with us please do get in touch with us we're always willing to listen to you we're always willing to listen to other perspectives and other opinions um there's so many ways to engage with us you can check out our instagram you can leave a comment by visiting www.theaudacityproject.net but we now that we've done our part it is important that you do your part so please do engage in conversation with your friends your parents so make sure that the conversation gains its momentum until every last person hears about this and understands india has a long way to go in terms of controlling and curbing caste based violence and caste based discrimination and it lies in all of our Even hands freedom of, speech. freedom of speech and it lies in all of our hands because you and i we make up the society if we remain silent the politicians and the police officials think that we don't know things but the truth is we really do know things and it's it's time for us to start making enough noise to demand some action and to demand some justice so we we really hope you would join us in doing that bit thank you so much for listening to us this is the audacity project As always, keep questioning culture, keep breaking patterns, be audacious and be kind. If you're further interested in knowing more about this uh, rape in shame culture and wish to read more on the Indian media's pro-affluent bias, we will link this brilliant paper by Shakuntala Rao and other informative blogs in our website www.theadaptityproject.net. It's 2020. Wake up India, be sensitive, ask questions, break the chain of hierarchy. Bye bye